Welcome back to the Network 5 Emergency Medicine Journal Club. Our third and final paper today will be presented by our very own Dr. Maria Martino. He's one of our Westmead ED advanced trainees. She'll be talking to us about the use of PPIs in ED for the management of emergent upper GI bleeders, something I think that's very pertinent to all of us who work in ED. Take it away, Maria. I'm talking about a study entitled Proton Pump Inhibitor Treatment Initiated Prior to Endoscopic Diagnosis in Upper Gastrointestinal Bleeding. It was published in 2012 in the Cochrane Library of Systematic Reviews, and it's actually an update of a systematic review previously published in 2006, which aimed to ascertain the role of PPI therapy initiated prior to endoscopic diagnosis in reducing mortality in unselected upper GI hemorrhage. It's also since been updated with a further systematic review published earlier this year. However, this review looked at no new papers and didn't really have any new results to describe. In terms of some background, so bleeding from lesions in the upper GI tract is common and it's a major cause of morbidity and mortality, which has been discussed in the previous parts of this podcast. And despite enormous advances in endoscopic and pharmacotherapy over the past 30-odd years, mortality rates have remained relatively unchanged from upper GI hemorrhage. And research has suggested that reducing the amount of acid in the stomach may help to control the bleeding. And the cessation of bleeding from a peptic ulcer is inhibited by gastric acid by two mechanisms. So firstly, by inhibition of clot formation and promotion of clot lysis, and secondly, by ongoing tissue damage. Drug therapy aimed at inhibiting gastric acid secretion increases gastric pH, facilitates clot formation, stabilizes the clot, and perhaps hastens the healing of the lesions. And so guidelines on the management, mainly of non-variceal upper GI bleeding from the British Society of Gastroenterology and some consensus groups, recommends the use of high-dose IV PPI in peptic ulcer bleeding with high-risk stigmata on endoscopy. But there's conflicting evidence regarding clinical efficacy of proton pump inhibitors initiated before endoscopy for upper GI bleeding. And so the question raised by this paper is about timing of the treatment and its benefit for the patients. So no systematic review or meta-analysis has looked specifically at the timing of therapy and its impact on clinical outcomes. And so the clinical question for this paper was to systematically review evidence from randomized controlled trials of the clinical effectiveness of PPI treatment initiated before endoscopy in patients with acute upper GI hemorrhage on several clinical outcomes, which I'll describe in a little bit. And it reviewed PPIs against no treatment, placebo, or histamine receptor antagonist therapy. And so in terms of the selection criteria, this systematic review and meta-analysis looked only at randomized controlled trials of hospitalized patients with unselected upper GI bleeding, undergoing active treatment with a PPI or control treatment, as mentioned. So they aim to assess whether PPIs showed overall benefit in reducing adverse clinical outcomes when commenced prior to endoscopy. Their primary outcome was mortality at 30 days, and their secondary outcomes were re-bleeding or the need for surgery within 30 days, the presence of stigmata of recent hemorrhage at index endoscopy. They defined this as active bleeding, a non-bleeding visible vessel or adherent clot, length of hospital stay, blood transfusion requirements, 
or requirement for endoscopic hemostatic therapy at index endoscopy. Their search methodology was quite extensive. So they searched several databases and major conference proceedings to September 2005. And then they re-ran those searches in February of 2006 and October of 2008. And I'll elaborate on that in a second. The criteria for the studies was that they had to be randomized controlled trials and compare the relative effectiveness of PPI versus the controls that I've mentioned. They looked at published and unpublished studies, full text and abstracts in all languages. Participants had to be admitted to hospital with upper GI bleeding or have developed it as an inpatient, and they had to be enrolled before the cause of bleeding was ascertained by endoscopy and allocated to their treatment prior to endoscopy as well. The treatment group and the control group had to receive their treatment uh, IV or orally, and the two groups had to have been managed similarly. And in terms of their search methods, they did electronic searches of the Cochrane Library, Medline, Embase, and Sinal. They also did electronic searches of the National Research Register and the Upper GI and Pancreatic Diseases Trials Register. Reference lists from the trials and identified articles were hand-searched to identify further relevant trials. Conference abstracts were also hand-searched, and the authors of trial reports published only as abstracts were contacted and asked to contribute full data sets or completed papers. They also searched several web-based resources, and members of the Cochrane Upper GI and Pancreatic Diseases Group and experts in the field were contacted and asked to provide details of outstanding clinical trials and relevant unpublished materials. They had two review authors independently checking trials and assessing the data, for extraction, and they had a third to deal with discrepancies. Any missing values in the data were requested from the authors and analyses were performed with an intention to treat basis. Assessment of heterogeneity was done using a chi-squared test, I-squared statistics and visual inspection of forest plots. And they determined that there was no significant heterogeneity among the studies. Meta-analyses were only performed if two or more trials with similar comparisons and outcome measures were found, and subgroup analyses were done for degree of allocation, individual control treatment, the route of PPI administration or the PPI used, the report of using endoscopic hemostatic treatment, and specific subgroup restricted to patients with peptic ulcer bleeding rather than unselected upper GI bleeding. In terms of the results of the search, 94 articles were initially identified from the electronic searches and 33 further articles from the rerun. Nothing more was found from hand searching. After review, 69 were excluded as they weren't relevant and three further because they had inadequate data. And of the remaining 55, 49 didn't meet the eligibility criteria. So six trials were included in the study. All of these were randomized controlled trials. Four were single center, two were multi-center, and they were across Europe and Asia. All the trials included participants with clinical signs of upper GI bleeding who went on to have endoscopy, and the total participants were 2,223. 1,114 were randomized to PPI, 1,109 randomized to control, and not all studies were included in all subgroup analyses. It was reported that the studies appeared to have gross baseline comparability of the treatment groups with a few exceptions. One of the studies had fewer high-risk patients in the control group and one was an abstract and didn't have baseline characteristics for all of the patients. But on the whole, it was mentioned that there was good baseline comparability. All trials had a well-defined inclusion criteria. Five trials provided detailed descriptions of the type, route, and method of administration, dose, and duration of the medication used. Four of the trials used IV omeprazole, one used lansoprazole orally, and one used IV pentoprazole. 
Three of the trials used a placebo, two trials used a histamine receptor antagonist, and one used no treatment as the control. And in terms of the results, unweighted pooled rates and odds ratios with 95% confidence intervals were calculated for each of the outcomes and compared between the treatment and controls. And funnel plots showed only small possible publication bias. As I said, on the whole, there was no statistical heterogeneity among the trials for dichotomous outcomes. And the study found generally that there were no statistically significant differences in mortality, rebleeding, or surgery between the PPI and control treatment. PPI treatment compared to control significantly reduced the proportion of patients with stigmata of recent hemorrhage at index endoscopy. However, they found this result was not robust to sensitivity analysis when they removed certain studies from the subgroup analysis. They also found that PPI treatment compared to control significantly reduced endoscopic therapy at index endoscopy. And for continuous outcomes like length of hospital stay and blood transfusion requirements, they actually couldn't perform an analysis because there wasn't sufficient data. When they broke it down by individual outcome, all the trials reported for mortality rate. The only difference was timing in the groups. So they did five-day, 30-day and 40-day mortality across the groups. But again, they found no statistically significant effect. For rebleeding and surgery, data was extracted from five trials each. For the rebleeding, two trials offered scheduled repeat endoscopy to all patients. Three trials offered an option, but didn't give the criteria for who got it and who didn't. And again, indications for surgery were variable across the studies, but no statistically significant effect was found for either rebleeding or surgery between PPI or control. For stigmata of recent hemorrhage and the need for endoscopic treatment, that was where they found a benefit. But again, the results weren't robust to the exclusion of the papers in either of those two subsets. In the subgroup analyses I mentioned before, they found the same results as for the whole paper. And so in conclusion, kind of this was the first updated systematic review and meta-analysis assessing the clinical effectiveness of PPI therapy initiated prior to endoscopic diagnosis in patients with acute upper GI bleed. They mentioned mortality obviously was the most important outcome, but there was no evidence that initiation of PPI prior to endoscopy had an effect on mortality. They determined that the quality of the evidence was low and while the confidence interval was wide, it might be a true result. It might also suggest inadequate power to rule out clinically important differences. There was no effect on rebleeding or the need for surgery, but interestingly, potentially a statistically significant reduction in stigmata of hemorrhage at index endoscopy with early PPI therapy and a reduced requirement for endoscopic hemostatic treatment. Thanks for that summary, Maria. That was actually quite succinct for a 55-page systematic review. Just to begin with, I wonder, Tim or Varen, if you could explain to us why mechanistically pantoprazole or other proton pump inhibitors would help us in this indication. You alluded to it at the start in that it's around the, um, the detriment that we think gastric acid has on clot formation. To go further on that, there's been a lot of debate around do you use an infusion or do you give bolus dosing? And there's been trials looking at that. And the theory around all that was also that would an infusion hold a more constant gastric pH as opposed to bolus therapy? Because we recognize that the pH 
is important in clot formation in the stomach. I think you also mentioned that the idea of, of the actual pathology, especially being that of an ulcer, ongoing necrosis from the acid as well. So that two-prong effect. It's just really interesting when it comes to this specific question about whether we should be using PPIs pre-scope. And even though the systematic review had 75 pages or something along those lines, there's no clear consensus as to what we should or shouldn't be doing. And each country's got, you know, different guidelines. So I know British guidelines actually don't recommend PPI before scopes and European guidelines also a bit ambiguous and say IV or oral is okay. And American guidelines used to be, you know, put patients on a PPI infusion and often Australians in general would be following the American guidelines um, as to what our practice is. But now there's a push away against PPI infusions in general. And now it's, you know, giving high dose BD PPI to be just as effective as a PPI infusion. So it just highlights that there is still no clear consensus as what is the way forward. And it just comes down to clinical judgment. I feel like it highlights how well the endoscopic interventions perform. Because ultimately, like all these patients get scoped and then they have an intervention or they don't. And then there's data that's more convincing for PPIs post-intervention. So once we've done something, we do know that if you give PPI post, it reduces re-bleeding, mortality and things like that. And I think giving it before, whether it's actually more an indication of the fact that patients get prompt endoscopy anyway. And I think the European guidelines hint at that where they sort of say, in centres where you have prompt endoscopy, you know, you should potentially think whether you do need to use PPI infusion. And I find that really interesting and it's something we could probably talk about around, well, can we always guarantee how promptly endoscopy is going to happen and things like that? So do we go about doing it anyway? Because that's sort of what the Europeans hint at is around that access to prompt endoscopy or for a place like Westmead where we get a lot of transfers. You know, I think if you're transferring a patient, there's a very good rationale to say, I think you should give PPI because they may not get prompt endoscopy. In places I've worked in Queensland, we service like really rural places. It takes a long time to transfer patients. So I think that it raises an interesting discussion point because even though it doesn't look like it improves hard outcomes, it seems pretty clear it does reduce the need for endoscopic intervention or those high-risk stigmata, but it's when that endoscopy happened. So they said on average the timing to endoscopy was 24 to 48 hours. And Mm. in the discussion, they mentioned a lot of previous RCTs and systematic reviews that looked at PPI on the whole. And there was benefit in PPI post-endoscopy. This paper obviously looking at starting it before. Is there a risk that we're perhaps starting PPI infusion and therefore being a little bit more laissez-faire about the endoscopy? I think in my mind, I don't think that the PPI is making a huge difference. The way that I approach it is this patient is kind of risk stratifying when a scope needs to be done ultimately. So I don't have a false sense of security that PPI is making a difference. And that's what the data is telling us. And you know, that's what this 75 page systematic review is also telling us as well. <laughs> That's my approach. And like something that I you know, use quite a lot, which are quite up to date, is the American College of Gastroenterology have clinical guidelines. I've just got it open up here and directly quoting from it, it says, available evidence indicates no benefit of pre-endoscopic PBI therapy for clinical outcomes, preventing a recommendation for its use. Given a modest reduction in endoscopic therapy, and the unproven possibility that PPIs might benefit a select minority of patients, and or those in whom endoscopic therapy is unavailable or delayed, we did not recommend against its use. Like it's the most vague statement 
I'm not falsely reassured that the PPI is doing a whole lot pre-endoscopy. And to go back to the, the very first paper and that discussion we had, we know that the, the evidence is there that we should be doing early endoscopy. So we know that and we know that our goal for all patients is they will get early endoscopy and at a most inpatient endoscopy before discharge. And as Varen said, it just becomes then a case of we just have to triage them based off acuity and the load of inpatient scopes we're trying to manage. But we definitely recognize that early endoscopy is important and improves outcomes. And that's really interesting, that statement about PPIs. And I think for me, that would lend itself to maybe where's the patient coming from and how quickly do you think you can get them that evidence-based early endoscopy? I wonder if maybe in the systematic review, we're asking the wrong question, because as you've alluded to, Tim, like ultimately it seems that the the definitive thing is the endoscopy. And so if all of them are going to get an endoscopy, then you're probably not going to see a mortality difference between the PPI group and the control group. So I wonder if maybe we should be looking at different outcomes, things like morbidity or symptom control, hospital length of stay, Mm -hmm. that sort of stuff. And so, you know, we don't have anything more than clinical experience to rely on. Could you tell us, do you think PPIs are beneficial in those regards? From experience, the majority of upper GI bleeds, non-variceal, I know I go on about that, non-variceal upper GI bleeds that we see, they've come in, they've had their bleeding event, they've been resuscitated, they go on PPI infusion, and we scope them in a non-emergent setting, in a very controlled environment. We go in and there's the source. And in a very, like I would say the majority of cases, we don't actually have to do any endoscopic intervention because they don't have high-risk stigmata now, did the PPI do that? Because they're saying that there's evidence to suggest that it does reduce high-risk stigmata. You definitely see that. Like the majority of cases, we're not going in and seeing actively bleeding ulcers in front of us. They're now very clean-based, stable, and then occasionally we see something that's got a visible vessel or something, then we do treatment. And then, as I said, then they go on PPI for 72 hours because the evidence shows that that is beneficial. So I think you're right in that. I think the heavy lifter is the scope. I think that is all the heavy lifting and probably improving all the outcomes. But it is interesting that the the PPI, we think, downgrades the endoscopic stigmata. And certainly what they don't mention is the stability of the patient in their recommendations. And I think if you've got a patient who's initially quite unstable, I'd be giving them PPI infusion because you'd be hoping that maybe that PPI infusion will downgrade what the ulcer is doing and it will go from being actively bleeding to stabilizing, clotting, then you have time to, as we said, resuscitate, get the patient stable, scope in a more controlled setting. So I think that's the only other thing they don't, they've addressed access to endoscopy, but maybe the patient in front of you as well. If you've, if you've got a patient who's unstable, there's no harm in giving PPI. That's, that's something they didn't mention any harm. No, they didn't. And I wondered about that because I guess if you've got something that doesn't have great benefit, but there is some benefit, if there's almost no harm and cost effectiveness is good, would you just use it? What I want to say is I think it's really exciting about the BD high dose pentoprazole being almost equivalent to an infusion because the amount of times it's 2am, you've got one cannula in your very difficult to cannulate comorbid upper GI bleed patient and you're using that to give blood products. You've got to come get a second. Are you saying that the evidence is equivalent then to use bolus dosing? Yeah, the American College of Gastroenterology came out with a paper recently in terms of the consensus guidelines, and they've said that there's no real difference between intermittent dosing versus continuous infusions. And like theoretically, because I love pharmacology, putting my pharmacology hat on, it kind of makes sense. The half-life of a PPI is roughly one and a half to two hours, but it's actually the effect of the PPI on the proton pump itself 
So a stat dose of, you know, 40 milligrams IV PPI will block about 70% of your proton pumps and just infiltrating a small dose. So, you know, eight milligrams per hour is probably doing the same thing than giving a stat dose of 40 milligrams. I think there's overall some people, especially in our field, and I'd like to actually hear your opinion on this, Tim, because people have very differing opinions at the moment because this is just a, a new thing and a new thing that people are trying to introduce and employ. And it's not always at this stage accepted by everyone, but I'm trying to change that with my pharmacology hat. really nice hat. <laughs> I think a lot of it's to do with where you grow up and what unit you were in, what their culture was. And that's not me saying that's best practice. Absolutely not. But I think that does influence things a lot where you grow up. You're right. Like the the guidelines are now catching up with it. The trials are there. So I think it's just going to be a culture change. Go for it. You're going to lead the, the charge. It'll take a few years. The new generation understands. <laughs> <laughs> I think you'll find most EDs will be on board with a drug they can give as a push that frees up their cannula for the next 12 hours. PPI infusion is, and PPI in general is always something that I've parked at the back of my priority list when I've got the hosing GI bleeder. That just comes down to resuscitation as a, in general, ultimately you need to acknowledge that nurses only have two hands and you often don't have a million nurses. You've only got a handful of nurses and you need to give them an order of interventions. And so for me, in the context of the varicell bleeders, we've already talked about the specific things that we would look at there, but in the context of a GI bleeder, for me, it is blood products, number one, and potentially directed treatments in the context of things like varices. Things like TXA and PPIs tend to be a little bit further down the list, probably PPIs over TXA given the recent halted trial. And for the same reason, I've tended to avoid PPI infusions at all costs because usually speaking in these hosing patients, you need every single line that you've got to try and you know put blood products into them, reverse their coagulopathy and that sort of thing. What's been your approach? I would agree. So if the patient's stable, PPI is something that's very easy to just chart, get given and move on to the next thing. And I'm very happy to be done with infusions and be able to give high dose BD PPI instead. But when your patient's unstable, as we've seen, the kind of early administration doesn't have great benefit in terms of your big outcomes, your mortality, your rebleeding, your need for surgery. And so it's going to go way down on the list to your ABCs, like Oksana mentioned, and getting the patient out of the department for some definitive intervention. Yeah, ABC. But I'm still curious with this idea that it downgrades the stigmata and when you've got that really unstable patient whether once you have done abc whether it is still the next thing you give purely because that might take it from a bleeding ulcer that can't quite clot off to maybe that little bit of acid suppression does help clot it and you've gone from a spurting vessel to adherent clot when you think about it in the long scheme of things as we've said that patient regardless will still go to endoscopy but now you've got a patient who's not actively bleeding an endoscopy to a patient who's got an adherent clot, which people who do endoscopy, that's a better scenario to be in. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so as you always do, when you've got someone who's really unwell, you're going to just try and do everything. Interestingly, the thing that I think is really helpful is that bolus though, that AT, that first bolus, that's really big. Like if you can get that high dose straight in, that's really beneficial. 
sort of moving on to the next question, like briefly talking about peptic ulcer disease and or just GI bleeding in general, are there other drugs that have these sort of marginal gains and be reaching for? So the only other ones that spring to mind in non-variceal bleeding is, so obviously your PPI, you can give your prokinetic agent, which is more in the hematemesis presentation, where you think you've got a stomach full of blood. And then it's coagulopathy reversal, if that's appropriate. In terms of the acid suppression, no, we don't use the H2 receptor antagonists. Um, we don't use pink lady. Transosomic acid, as far as I'm aware, it's not in many guidelines. In fact, we probably don't recommend using transosomic acid in the context of upper GI bleeding because it's increased risk of forming clots or being prothrombotic, myocardial infarctions, um, DVTs, PEs. I don't think that's advised in the context of upper GI bleeding. From my awareness of the research with TXA, the sort of likelihood of harm is very small but the likelihood of benefit is even smaller. So if you're really throwing the kitchen sink at someone and it's an access block day and the patient has been sitting in ED all day and you've got nothing better to do, then I'm sure it's a reasonable thing to think about. But by and large for GI bleeding, I think halted trial was good for telling us that it's not actually beneficial for mortality outcomes. So it probably can be parked. Patients on aspirin, daily aspirin. What are your thoughts on withholding that in the upper GI bleed patient? I answer your question with a question, why are they on aspirin? If it's for secondary prevention of cardiovascular disease or patients have stents, whether it's cardiac, iliacs, whatever, continue. It's only if they're on it for a soft indication. They're a diabetic. My doctor thought it'd be a good idea. I go on a bit of aspirin to protect my heart. No, but otherwise they should stay on aspirin. And the reason for that is we know that those patients, if they have a bleed, are at higher risk of type 2 MI, et cetera, et cetera. Plavix, different story. And that all comes down to if they've got stents, how long the stents have been in, et cetera, et cetera. If they're a very recent stent, we're talking like less than six months, normally cardiology are heavily involved in those patients. Interestingly, like all our interventional stuff I was mentioning before, uh, we rarely stop 100 milligram prophylactic aspirin for polypectomy, anything like that. The bleed risk is not really high and antithrombotic risk is, is huge. If there's a good reason for them to be on aspirin, you shouldn't stop them. So my take-home point is while there wasn't any evidence to support the initiation of the PPI therapy to improve mortality, reduce the risk of rebleeding or surgical intervention, there was kind of soft evidence that it helps with stigmata of recent hemorrhage at endoscopy and the need for intervention for hemostasis. And so if there's not much harm and it's a cost-effective treatment, it's probably worth giving. The second take home is that there probably needs to be maybe further subgroup analyses assessing cause of bleeding. This study looked at all comers with GI bleeding and there are huge differences as have been mentioned with discussion of the other papers for patients who come in with cirrhotic bleeding versus peptic ulcer bleeding versus other causes. And this particular intervention may actually have weight just with the peptic ulcer patients. And finally, I guess we need to focus on other treatments with mortality benefit in those other groups. So your cephalosporins, your terlipressin and octreotide, your erythromycin, et cetera. Thank you so much, Maria. That was great. All right, guys, thanks so much for a great discussion. Before we wrap up our episode, it's time for our favorite part of this podcast, Kit's Corner. Thanks. 
I was contemplating what to choose for my corner this episode. I could have spoken about the ballpoint pens that are all the rage in Japan with live parasitic nematode worms encased within them, and yes, I promise you they do exist. But as I was sitting there thinking about coffee ground emesis and staring into my cappuccino, I fell into the philosophical trap. What is a cappuccino? Those of you that know me well will know that I love etymologies as well as coffee, and this is no exception. The word cappuccino originates from the 16th century capuchin friars, who wore brown robes, cappuccino brown in fact, with cappuccio, meaning hoods, apologies to any Italian speakers out there. Now sources vary at this point, but these friars in turn got their name from children shouting either scappuccini, which means without hoods, implying a hermit, or cappuccini, literally the 16th century equivalent of hoodies. (laughs) Thanks, kid. (laughs) With that, we've reached the end of another great Journal Club episode. Thank you so much to our guests, Tim and Varen, for some really insightful discussion, and to Oksana, who was able to share our insights. Maria and Jack, again, did an excellent job of presenting their papers and sharing some thoughts. We really want to hear from you. So please, if you have any thoughts, questions, or you just want to get involved, please email us on westmeadedjournalclub at gmail.com. Otherwise, we look forward to being in your ears again next month, where we're going to be talking about environmental medicine. I'll find that it is